Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Very lucky um, to be working with Martin Doherty. And Martin is the COO at the Welcome Sanger Institute on the Genome Campus. Uh, and before we talk about Martin, I just thought I'd like to acknowledge Ben, because Ben, it's been great working with. This is episode eight. Ben and I go back um, to when I was the visiting professor at um, leadership at uh, Cass Business School. And Ben was the bright, brightest student on our, oh, that be arguable from the others, they'll all argue about that on our MBA program, the tech MBA program. But no, you stood out at the time and we, we became good friends and uh, we've stayed in touch since and he's one of the rising stars in LinkedIn. So Ben, it's great working with you. I just want to acknowledge that publicly. Thanks but, very much. Great working okay. with you, Jonathan. All right. <laughs> and welcome, so, Martin. I hate yeah. to break this up, guys. I know. We're <laughs> back into Martin. But Martin has had a fascinating career uh, in four sectors, academia, uh, commercial, charity, public, he also is a special constable uh, for the police, uh, which he does at his weekends when he's not um, working so very hard as the CEO of a huge campus. But Martin, tell us a bit about, uh, welcome uh, firstly, but tell us a bit about your role. Yeah, certainly. So I'll start off with um, with welcome. Uh, welcome is, is I think, the, sec- the world's second largest medical charity. Um, you know, they... They sponsor research in the UK. They sponsor research, um, you know, all over the world. Um, and actually, my um, my career started with Welcome. I was a, a Welcome Fellow um, just after I finished my PhD. So, in, in some ways, I've gone full circle, um, mm. which is really quite rewarding. I mean, they're based down in London. Um, they're completely independent. Um, they advise on policy and many other areas of, of science as well. Very active, very supportive uh, charity, looking after. UK science and the um, the campus I operate and the institute I work at is is basically a wholly owned subsidiary of Welcome um, and that's the Sanger Institute and the Welcome Genome Campus. Um, the campus was originally um, conceived just over sort of 25 years ago and the idea at that point is Welcome saw that uh, it, how important it was going to be to sequence the genome of the first human ever um, and there was a bit of a race on between this happening in a kind of international collaborative way and this happening on a kind of commercial basis. Um, so there was a big investment from Welcome. They purchased the uh, the campus, started the Welcome Institute or Welcome Centre, as it was, the Sanger Centre, as it was then. And the Sanger Centre contributed something like a third thereabouts of the first human genome, which took nearly 10 years and cost three billion dollars um and now we can do literally uh you know hundreds if not thousands of whole human genomes uh, a month so oh, the science is to the layman martin to to sequence the genome why has that been so so world-changing really yeah so you know you imagine that um if you're an architect um you need the designs to be able to build a house or build an office um and a house and an office isn't the same so those blueprints look slightly different and in effect, your, your genome is your blueprint for your body. Uh, every cell in your body, other than red blood cells, has a genome. 
that genome is read inside your cell. And then all the proteins that are kind of pulled together after that are the action things that make your cells work. So your genome in your in your cells in your brain is the same as the genome of the cells in your heart. It's just how that code is read and then expressed that gives the variation you see around those organs. And obviously, all of our genomes are unique to us. Um, and that's why, you know, we are individuals in effect. Mm. Um, so that's, the, um, that's the, 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 the campus and the Sanger Institute have grown and thrived from there. Um, you know, over the last sort of 25 years, uh, in around about 2000, the first human genome was fully sequenced. People kind of said, well, that's genomics done. We've got the blueprint. But basically, it's, you know, it's led to you know, new areas of science that we, we hadn't even imagined, uh, you know, a couple of decades ago. And the, the kind of exponential rate of generating genomic and other biological data is kind of almost, out, it, well, it has outstripped Moore's law. Um, we have a, a sister institute on the campus, which is the uh, European Bioinformatics Institute. And the, the construct of having the data generator, which is the Sanger Institute, and the EBI, which is, if you like, the library that homes all of this data and produces services, is a really powerful mixture uh, for both informatics and for genomics. So mm. about two and a half thousand people in total on the campus. That's fantastic. Two and a half thousand. That's a huge amount. And, and you are in the moment um, in the role of COO dealing with lots of stuff going on. I mean, you, you've probably been busier than you've ever been when we were speaking to you earlier. And of course, the biggest thing that, that happened to you recently was the COVID-19 uh, crisis and the pandemic, not only for how you ran uh, as the operator of, of um, the Sanger uh, Institute, but also what extra help the government was asking you to do. So, so do you want to just tell us a bit about how you dealt with that crisis, what you've learned from it about leadership generally, and just general themes and stuff that you've learned about dealing with a crisis? Um, yeah. Interesting to hear your views. Yeah, I think um, the thing that I've, I've that sort of resonated the most with me over the last sort of 10 weeks or so is, is flexibility. Um, you know, with the best will in the world, uh, one can have all the training in place in crisis management and these sorts of things but actually uh when it comes to an event like we have at the moment i don't think there's any amount of training that, that prepares people properly um so i think you know for me closing the campus was a relatively straightforward thing to do that that was um you know we probably did that just a couple of days ahead of the the total lockdown uh, in good order um but the real challenge has been uh you know making sure that people feel that sense of identity with the Institute, despite the fact all of us, well, many of us are working from home. Um, so there are some play things we put in place to do that. Obviously thinking about people's uh, mental health and their well-being in these different uh, sort of environments is really important. And again, the Institute, you know, has, has put things in place to, to help people uh, work through that. Um, and, and then the real challenge really is, is reopening. Um, and reopening as a kind of COVID secure employer. Um, you know, our crisis management team had been thinking for a number of weeks around how we might go through this process. And, um, you know, they're a great team, actually, I have to say. And they kind of almost double guessed or certainly second guessed pretty much what was going to be in the new health and safety legislation around COVID and social distancing and being a, a COVID secure employer. So lots of those things were already in place. But there is an exquisite complexity, I think, for every employer at the moment, which is, you know, how do you use your facilities in the most appropriate way? 
um, to be as successful in achieving your strategy and objectives, given that it, we are working in such a different way. And for us, it, some of that was around making quite difficult decisions that there are some of our staff that physically have to be at the site to do their work. You know, if they're working in the laboratories or in, in the big sort of sequencing pipelines, they have to be there to do that. So we have made a decision that people that you know, obviously can still work from home will work from home and we will get people to site that physically have to be there to do their jobs. And the site looks very different. Um, you know, the campus is designed as a, to convene people. Science is all about, you know, collaboration and people working together successfully. And all of a sudden, you know, in our diner, there are these sad looking chairs and tables that are two meters apart from each other. And one person sat at each table and signage everywhere. And, you know, it, it looks and feels quite different. And I think also part of my role and my team's role is to prepare people in thinking about what that will mean for them as an individual when they do come back onto campus. Yeah, and it's, it's a really good point. Many of the different leaders that I've talked to, um, thinking about you know, the legal implications of you know, how do you get people back? You can't force them back if they don't want to come back. What is your, uh, what is your legal responsibilities? You know, what will happen if people sue you? And you, know, how do you, get, you can see that problem with the teachers and things like that. So that's dealing with a the crisis. Then let's talk a bit about inspiring leaders in a crisis. And who would you pick as an example at any level, really, of an inspiring leader you've worked with and what qualities they showed in a crisis, which we can all learn from those people? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, I, sort of, I do, do think about this quite often. I think, you know, I think leadership can happen at pretty much any level across an organisation. Um, but there's there's one one individual, one group of people that I, I worked with in a previous role. Um, and that's when I was at the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists uh, running a health service research group for, for, for NICE. Um, and it became evident that, uh, you know, obstetricians that, that, um, that deliver babies, midwives that deliver babies, they have to keep a cool mind. Um, and actually, um, in developing some of those guidelines, we had some really quite tricky times that perhaps some of our recommendations weren't kind of fully aligned with the politics at the time and there was a particular professor of midwifery um, who as the chair of my board um, had such a, a calm almost like stoical presence um, and would think very calmly and clearly through those issues when perhaps you know a few of the people around us were really starting to get very animated and worried about things and I actually learned a huge amount uh, from that, to be honest with you. And as you'll know, Jonathan, I've subsequently gone on to do quite a lot of reading around stoicism and actually, you know, being prepared actually, you know, for, for these sorts of events. And, and, and talk a bit about that, because I, I do, uh, you know, like your experience about keeping calm and putting things in perspective. If there were a couple of things you took as a leadership tip from the Stoics, what would be the little sayings that have, have helped you practically? Yeah, I think so, so. So one of them is that is that uh, tension um, between sort of emotionally attachment and, and empathy, which is really important, yet still being able to kind of keep some distance um, from decision making. Um, that that balance, that type, the sort of tension between those issues, I think, is really really important. And being able to you know take a moment of calmness um, when things are getting really tough. And, you know, learning some breathing exercises and these sorts of things, practical things that you can do, not just to, to manage your kind of emotional state, but also your physiological state. And these things are, are really quite important. 
Yeah, and, and we were talking earlier about your time as a special constable. And sometimes when you get thrown into a crisis there, I thought you had a lovely story. Can we jump to that? <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, how so you this... might have to manage your emotions when you're <laughs> wrong and you're on your own. So um, this this was a, I was uh, I was called Double Crew. So I was with another partner at, at, at you know at the start of the job, um, and we'd gone to, to to one site and we did what's called a scene preservation. Um, there'd been a stabbing, and it was our job to make sure we looked after the site. And then all of a sudden, we had another job, and my colleague was was called away. Um, and eventually, I I took off the scene pres and jumped in the van and was heading back to the hospital where my colleague was. And all of a sudden, I came across, uh, you know, an RTC in a dual carriageway in one of the parkways in Peterborough. Um, and I knew that I obviously had to do something. So I, I stopped and started to, to close the uh, close the carriageway. Um, so there I was all on my own, putting my cones out. Uh, you know, fortunately, nobody was seriously injured. Um, but it was, uh, you know, the road was completely closed. There was glass everywhere. And I'm thinking, you know, I can't do this on my own. I need I really need some help. So I just about managed to get onto the radio because obviously the noise of the dual carriageway still running on the other side made it almost impossible to, to, to listen. And then, um, you know, just like the ride of the Valkyries, I saw some flashing lights in the distance and I kind of recognised that um, uh, a road policing car had obviously, you know, attended site and they, they put what's called a rolling roadblock on. Um, but I couldn't hear a word they were trying to tell me over the radio. And it's just like, you know, can that special please? You know, and I just couldn't hear a word. Anyway, this this car pulled up to about three metres in front of me with all these lines of traffic behind. And these two lovely officers <laughs> jumped out. It's like, you know, we're here to help. You know, are you OK? You know, it's all good. It's all fine. But I just couldn't hear a word you were saying. These guys were amazing, you know, so calm uh, under those sorts of circumstances. And within about five or ten minutes, we'd cleared the road. Uh, you know, we'd got all the, the people in the crash sorted out and, and the traffic was flowing again. But for me, that was a real... Um, you know, just a learning experience, you know, despite the fact that, you know, uh, I'm a COO and I do this, sometimes you just, you need people's help and you just got to, you know, reach out. And fortunately I had a radio and that one worked. Well, you were talking about needing people's help and the importance of not trying to do things on your own, but having a really good team. We, I think you and I have talked before about the incomplete leader leading a complete team. And, and you were telling us uh, where we're chatting, Ben and I, with you before about uh, which team you found has been the most inspiring team dealing with crises. Do you want to just talk about an inspiring team that you know and, and what it is that makes that such a good team and, and what lessons others could take about putting a good team together or making it a better team? Yeah, I think, um, you know, when you when you you get into sort of very senior leadership roles, the, the most important thing that you can do is is um, is make the right appointments um, and spend time getting that right. Um, and I think I, I would probably look to the team that I've got at the moment, my senior operational leadership team uh, at the Genome Campus and Sanger Institute. This is a team that we've convened um, only really in the last sort of two, two and a half years. Um, but by design, uh, you know, they're from different sectors. They have different backgrounds. And one might think that, um, you know, having such a mixture, you know, wasn't a good recipe. But actually, it's it's the best recipe. Um they are they are diverse, you know. Um, fortunately, our, our gender balance we've been able to get that right. So our our ops team is fifty fifty uh, on that balance. But they're from different different sectors, you know, from engineering, from science, um, from commerce, and they all bring a different set of perspectives. And I think it's my job to um, 
you know, to allow them, to give them the freedom to, to think, to give them the right landscape in which they can deliver deliver their roles, um, make sure that they're aligned with the strategy of what we're trying to achieve with the Institute, and then absolutely play them to their strengths. And what's become completely apparent over the last 10 weeks and longer is, you know, this group have gelled so well. Um, I've never really worked with a team like it. Importantly, they, they look after each other. Um, and I think that's you know, really important in these current times. Um, you know, they've, they've set up a, a slightly irreverent WhatsApp group <laughs> where, they, where they, you know, they have a, 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 good, a good time together socially. Um, we have a drop-in session every morning where we have uh, you know, tea and coffee together. And I think they, you know, they all bring a different perspective. They're willing to challenge, but it's in a, it's in a, safe, it's in a safe place. So challenging is an appropriate thing to be able to do. And I think that uh, that creates such a positive vibe um, that great things come from that. Yeah, uh, it's fantastic just, to have a quality team. Just a Sorry, quick but... one, but yeah, just a quick one before you move on from from your team, because I don't I don't think we we sort of covered actually what your team's doing in 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 the light of the the, the current crisis. I know you're doing some really really sort of important work, and it, it sounds sounds fascinating. Just thought it'd be be good to sort of find out a bit a bit about that. Yeah, of course, Ben. So. Um, you can imagine our, our, our scientists have been sort of, you know, chomping at the bit to get their hands on COVID-19 and think about research mm. that they can do. Um, so we've started, I think, about another 12 areas of research uh, associated with, uh, with COVID, looking at a whole range of different areas, um, as well as trying to maintain some of the other activities of the Institute. But I think the, um, you know, the, 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 some of the most important work that we're doing at the moment is actually sequencing the viral genome. Uh, there is a, a, a group that's been pulled together that is a combination of NHS laboratories around the country, universities, um, Public Health England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, as well as the Sanger Institute that's focusing on um, sequencing the viral genome from pretty much you know, all locate locations around the country. Because understanding the viral genome allows us to give real insights into the epidemiology of the disease and how it's how it's kind of changing and developing over time. And I think, um, you know, using sequencing or next generation sequencing as a tool to do this is actually gonna be really important, not just but now, but in the future. Uh, there will mm. be some, you know, potential challenges in the future around uh, viral spikes and these sorts of things. And we need to be on top of those and understanding what that means, um, you know, within our country, but also globally. And I think that piece of work is going to be really important in allowing us to do that. Mm. And those subtle differences as it changes over time is going to give you almost like a, a map of, of how it's spread from different place to place. Yeah, exactly. And, so, yeah. you know, every time every time the, um, the virus replicates, um, it, it makes mistakes. You know, it's um, I say it's a it's a blueprint and blueprints can have errors in them and change over time. And actually, that's kind of what natural selection evolution is all about, really. Hmm. Um, but we're able to track those and that allows us then to understand how the disease is spreading, if you like, from one person to the next or within a particular population or a particular area. Um, it will give some some real insights to to the decision makers. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like from our early conversation that you and the scientists and all your operations team feel a real sense of purpose and focus at this time to help um, uh, those who are trying to save lives and uh, sort of stop it in the future or understand it in the future because a bit like flu, it'll probably be with us for many years. But if we can understand it more, at least we can manage it better. Yeah, so that, that, that's fantastic. And 
And and from your inspiring team that you're currently working with, you as a as an academic and a scientist, uh, you've been commercial, charity, public, you know, still a special customer in spare time. What about you were talking about some of your early days in Liverpool when you had to go abroad? What what I'd love another story. Okay, um, and, and things go wrong in a crisis. <laughs> yeah, so so um, it's fair it's fair to say I was quite a late developer, Jonathan. Okay, so um, <laughs> when I started my uh, my my PhD at uh, Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, um, I didn't have a passport, um, <laughs> and I hadn't. I mean, I was like nineteen, twenty years old. Oh, I wasn't older than that. Older about twenty one, twenty two. I hadn't been out the country, um, and within I don't know about six months of of, of starting uh, at the Trop Shop, as we called it affectionately. Um, I was organizing trips to, you know, Venezuela, Costa Rica. These were sort of field trips related to the um, related to the research. And I remember on one trip, um, I was out there with uh, Professor Ward, who actually was a, a great mentor of mine, actually, and 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 really um, really spurred me on, and actually actually got me to register for a PhD in the first place, and gave me, you know, a whole sort of opportunity that I hadn't even realized would would be on the cards. Um, so I was with him and uh, in Venezuela, actually, uh, with a, a, a couple of technicians and a professor from out there. Out there, and we were staying in a in a really small um, medical centre on the Colombian-Venezuelan Venezuelan border, um, which is, you know, an interesting place to spend some time. I have to say, um, one has to be careful who you speak to. But obviously, we were there because, uh, you know, we, we were investigating a disease called leishmaniasis, and and the uh, the Samfly vector, and that's the work that we were doing. And I, I sort of went down into the medical centre one day from the, um, the place where we were staying, and Prof Ward, who, you know, very calm gentleman, um, said, oh, by the way, Martin, there's been a revolution. Said, what do you mean there's been a revolution? There's been a, there's been a coup in Venezuela, and, um, and bless him. So, to, you know, we, we, we managed to kind of carry on with our work, um, but there were some really quite hairy times when we came across sort of, you know, men with guns that wanted money for us to be able to carry on doing our, on our research. Um, but, you know, it was interesting that uh, even then I was, you know, quite young. Um, as an experience, it's always kind of stayed with me that, you know, life still goes on. You can still have conversations with people. You can still make things happen, despite the fact that all of this turmoil is kind of happening around you. Um, and we went back the next year to the same location and we, you know, we carried on that longitudinal study. Um, but it was a, an interesting life lesson for me at a tender age of 22. Yeah, boy. And so before I hand over to Ben for some quick fire questions, what would be from that experience and other things in crisis, what would be your top tip on inspiring leadership that you'd pass on to people? Practical thing that you, served you well then, now, and that kind of stuff that, that might help others. Um, I suppose there's, there's two things I would um, I'd make reference to, really. One of them is, um, you know, to lead, it's not about the talking, it's the listening. Uh, you know, you, you have to be a really profound, active listener. Um, and quite often, uh, the people that talk a lot <laughs> aren't necessarily great leaders. Um, so that, that's one thing. And the other thing is, um, where you can, you should be, you know, driven by the evidence. Um, and sometimes taking the extra time and effort to to gather that evidence before you make a decision is really important rather than just making you know the ad hoc emotional emotional decisions very good thanks martin ben over to you i just do some quick fire questions looking at the the habits that you've formed over the years to make you successful and and help you as a as a leader and it's titled 
healthy, wealthy, and wise. So yeah, okay. if you're ready, we'll 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 jump straight in with um, with the with the first uh, first question and um, just sort of looking at, at your your current situation. It's pretty high pressure. There's there's some important work to do. How do you stay healthy during these these sort of times of um, crisis, both sort of mentally and physically? What's really important? Yeah, so I think um, it's it's making sure that you have time for yourself um, and that you can you know take yourself away from from that that stressful environment and do something different now you know there are a couple of things that, that i do at the moment for that um believe it or not one of them is is being a special constable uh it sounds really strange to say you know you're going from one potentially stressful environment into one that's potentially even more stressful but it is you are so focused when you're doing that role that everything else outside of you know that role just disappears for a little while. It's a bit like um, it's a bit like skiing when you ski down the mountain. You know you are completely focused on you know not falling over, hitting a tree, hitting somebody else. Um, and I, I find that actually uh, really great and really invigorating. Now at the moment I'm I'm stepped I've stepped away from the special constabulary for a little bit because of all the other issues that that I'm managing. So I do miss it. I have to say. But the other thing that I do is is almost at the other end, um, which is behind the barn where we live here. I managed to convince my uh, my wife and my mother-in-law who lives with us that I, I, I should steal a little bit of land. And <laughs> and about 10 years ago, I, I put an allotment in there. Um, and that, that's almost at the other the other extreme. You know, it's it's quite calming. Um, and actually to spend some time seeing the, the, the changes of the seasons and the plants coming through and the growing you know, I, that, that's the other way that I, I, I relax. Um, and sometimes I, I get some really decent veg off the allotment, but not necessarily <laughs> always. <laughs> nice, nice. That calming moment, yeah. Correct, yeah, yeah, that calming moment. <laughs> okay, brilliant. And, and um, second subject area is wealthy. Obviously, in this time of crisis, there's a lot of people who are struggling. There's a lot of people that have been put in, in situations which are tough. So... Um, We've been looking for any nuggets of of, uh, of, of wisdom around um, wealthy um, to, to to pass on. So, is there any pieces of advice that you've had over the years about money that um, that you you pass on? Um, I just uh, you know, so I've I've you know for a long time sort of worked in the charity sector, um, not really worked in industry, not really been motivated actually that much by by money. Um, mm -hmm. For me, it's actually more about um, the organization that I'm working for and what it is that they're, they're trying to achieve. Um, but you do, you know, even before COVID, you know, we'd, we'd had a decade of really quite difficult financial times. And I think um, for employers, it's about creating a, a workplace that gives individuals choice. Um, I think that's really important. So, you know, we're working towards having a really flexible benefits approach so that, um, you know, when you're in your early 20s and you, you, what you want to do is save a deposit for a house, you might want to put slightly less into your pension fund at that point because you've got a different goal in life. And as an employer, I think it's really important that we give uh, that flexibility of approach to individuals and move away from perhaps the more sort of patriarchal approach that, that, that we've had within society. And I think that's really mm. important. Um, and I think that's one of the things that, that, that you know, we can contribute as an employer. Hmm. Yeah, def definitely, definitely. And um, finally, on this section, just looking at a, a piece of wisdom. So, so something that you strive to live your 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 life by. Um, 
So I think it would be for me, it would be about um, honesty and integrity. These are these are you know two things that are absolutely um, at the the top of my tree. Um, you know, I've done some development work with Jonathan, and he would tell you that um, I'm actually at the extreme end in those two domains. Um, but um, but with um, with my work that I do with the police, um, I, I also do some work for um, the professional standards department. Um, and I do the day one inductions for all of the new uh, special constables that are starting their training. And when you look at the 12 different values uh, that are completely important to being a police officer, uh, honesty and integrity are number one at the top of the tree. And if you find yourself in a position where you, you breach those in some way, be it to yourself or to others, I think at that point, you know, you've lost the plot at that point. I think those are the two most important things. Yeah. Awesome. Really good to, to get the answer to those questions. So um, we haven't got any questions coming in at the moment, but um, what, one one that I had uh, was was around the, the the work you're actually doing on 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 um, on COVID and just sort of looking at there's so much um, there's so much information that's coming through about the the, the possibility of getting a, a, a sort of vaccine in 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 um, quick fashion. I wondered if, if you had, given your sort of experience, uh, a bit of an idea of how that process is going and, and the, the reality that, that it probably will t take a lot longer than we're, we're expecting. Yeah, so, you know, um, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it, that, um, mm. that science is, is, you know, so focused. It's like a laser at the moment on COVID, you know, and I don't think we've, we've really seen such an international focus on a scientific challenge in modern times. Um, mm. You know, putting a man on the moon w was one thing, you know, that was one country, fascinating engineers. What we're trying to achieve with COVID is a, is a bit like that, um, but on a global perspective. Mm. And I think it's, it's researchers and science's responsibility to be open and transparent with the data that's being generated and share that globally um, because you know this isn't about one individual making a big breakthrough it's about myriad pieces of a jigsaw puzzle coming together uh, to be able to take things forward so mm. you know the vaccines are fascinating story there are probably upwards of 100 different vaccines being looked at globally uh, there are a number in this country uh, you know and all over the world um, and I think, you know, it's fair to say that we've not really seen, um, you know, that, that, that sort of endeavour ever, actually, mm. to be honest with you. But there, yeah. is the, there, is a, there is tainted with realism. You know, this is a product that we're going to have to potentially, uh, you know, inject into, uh, you know, every human on the planet uh, to be able, or a fair proportion of every human on the planet to be able to control the disease. And that's a massive challenge. So, you know, mm. it comes with a a very big sort of caveat um, that it, you know, it is such a significant challenge. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. Such a balance, and it's such a weird thing that we're, that, that in science, science, um, scientific um, relationships, everybody is sharing data, and it has to be a, a real sort of global effort. But then actually, the virus is for, forcing us to be very separated as 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 a as a as a world as a, as a, as a well, there's a complete there's a complete paradox there isn't there yeah. um that um you know so there are preprints going up on the internet of scientific information i mean that mm. was kind of happening before covid but uh, you know even more so now people kind of openly sharing data 
So all of the genomic data that we've created is is in a, an open public archive that people can go and access. Yeah. That's really important. Um, but it is fascinating that you know what's been most successful so far is a you know a two thousand year old approach to to controlling infectious diseases. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we've got a question coming from the stream. Uh, so Lee Pike, um, his uh, facilities manager, he's asking, what would be your top tip for leaders bringing people back into the workplace and managing managing that change? So it's probably a good question to both of you. Really. Yeah, yeah, no, so um, uh, the steps that we're going through is obviously, um, you know, understanding your estate um, and understanding the pinch points within the estate. So, you know, our, our sort of, FM team are modeling things like capacity uh, for different areas of the buildings. But what's really important is those is those those points within the building where people are going to come together and how mm. you manage those effectively. Um, the actual document that the UK government has designed, there's one specifically around research and research institutes. Um, and there are some brilliant, it's actually a really good document, I have to say. So so my uh, my head of FM and my head of health and safety actually agreed on something which was this was a really good document actually had some really sensible stuff inside <laughs> um, and I'd, I'd, I'd use that as a point of reference for people and then just being uh, you know really clear about the kind of um, you know the employer's responsibility in all of this and making the workplace as safe as, as safe as possible um, and that's about using different channels to engage with people so there's all the physical signage that you need to put out you know there is a, a new induction. So we, we've created a whole new induction for people coming back onto the campus that we will roll out with individuals as they start to, to come back because it looks and feels so different. And then another one is, is culturally as well. And it's, you know, it's almost you need to have a culture where it's okay to talk I'm to people sure about... That's Siri just going off on one, by the way. <laughs> she, doesn't, no. she doesn't quite understand, apparently. No. But it's a, it, it, culturally, it's, you, know, you need a workplace where people are, are happy to challenge and question. So if you see a couple of colleagues, you know, that, that, you know, sat too close together, people need the courage to be able to say, actually, guys, you know, is that an appropriate thing to be doing? Uh, do you want to move a little bit further apart? Need to be yeah. a little bit careful there because we've also moved to uh, family pods in some areas as well. And that's about having the similar level of epidemiological risk of infection um, just to kind of manage, you know, the site as effectively as we can. Yeah, that's great advice. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. And, and we were talking with Benny and I before about diversity and inclusion, particularly in scientific careers, um, particularly because uh, there's always that challenge of many men and women beginning at the beginning, but higher up in science, it thins out and you get less and less women going through. And it's a real challenge. You've just got an award. Do you want to just tell us about the award that you've got at the Sanger Institute and, and how you're trying to make it fairer and greater diversity and more inclusion yeah uh thanks jonathan so uh you know over the last sort of three four years we've worked really hard um around equality and, and inclusion and there is a, a a national award scheme for for research institutes and and the higher education sector which is called athena swan um so a couple of weeks ago we got notification that we've achieved a silver award for athena swan which is absolutely fantastic you know uh, the, uh, our kind of people that work in edi and more broadly across the organization are actually really very proud of that uh, that achievement mm. um but there is you know there is a significant challenge in 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 uh, academia in women achieving those very senior roles um there is a 
very much a, a, a structural deficit, at, at, you know, in those senior roles. And I always kind of hark back to the time when I was um, chief exec at the Royal Statistical Society. Um, and we had a group called um, Career Young Statisticians. So these are people that, you know, passed their master's, PhD, perhaps sort of three to five years into their career. And I was, um, they have a head office, which is an old Victorian school near the Barbican. Um, and uh, they've converted the old school hall into a meeting room. And I looked out at these career young statisticians. Um, there are probably about 200 in the room, something like that. And I'd say about 130 of them were women. Um, and yet when you go and, and, and speak to the senior professors in statistics around the country, um, the vast majority of them are men. So there's something you know, about life choices that people take that means that, you know, the right number of women don't get into those senior roles. And the challenge that we, you know, are constantly thinking about is what are the policies, you know, what are the approaches, what supports do we need to have in place to to say it's it's kind of, you know, we need to be we need to do this in a different way. We need to be better at this. But it's a challenge right across academia in those senior roles. Yeah. Well, we've got about five minutes left. So I'm going to hand over to Ben, see if Ben's got any more questions or anything that come to mind. I've got a few uh, up my sleeve, but just uh, wonder, if, Ben, what about you? Sure, yeah. So um, just uh, uh, sort of looking at that, that question of um, diversity and, uh, and inclusion, um, where, where do you sort of see, um, uh, sort of, it, it, it's science an area where, you, you see that uh, uh, predominantly, or do you think it, it's a, it's something that's a problem in lots of um, different areas? I know we we have uh, the same in in LinkedIn in, in in different parts of the business, and we do a lot of work around uh, around that. But um, is it is it a universal problem? I think it's I think it's a universal problem. You just need to look at the way that um, you know um, people are mandating uh, you know women on boards. I mean, there are some countries where you have to have a quota. Um, that comes with a whole set of challenges. Um, that sense of pull within the system does come with, you know, with, with some significant challenge. So it's not just academia, I have to say, you know, it, it is it is true of other sectors. Some organizations, um, you know, have been better at solving these problems. Um, mm. From my perspective, on the operational side, you know, there are some tricks I can use um, to, to, to redress that balance. So. If I'm fortunate enough to, you know, work with a headhunter to to, um, to look for a senior operational role, I can demand that they bring me a, a you know, a gender split 50-50 uh, shortlist and actually, you know, give them a bit more time so that they can achieve that. Uh, mm. With what's called the faculty roles, these are the sort of senior scientific roles, that's much more difficult to do. Um, and, you know, there are, there are different ways of sort of anonymizing recruitment processes but when you know your your saleable product is your, are your publications, um, that's very difficult to do as well. You know, so you can't really anonymize that recruitment process. So mm. there are there are some significant challenges. I think it's more about creating a workplace um, where we can be as supportive as we possibly can, so that people can make the right career choices at the right time. That that mm. I think that's that's the nub of it to a certain extent. And I was just going to build on that. In my own experience over the last I know, 20 to 40 years, there are certain sectors I've worked in where there is a better gender balance. And particularly in senior meetings, you get far greater levels with, with uh, more gender balance, far greater levels of emotion, emotional and social intelligence. 
Um, people forget what you say, they forget what you do, but they never forget how you make them feel. And I think time and again, particularly in tech startups, scientific businesses, uh, academia, um, people have got very hurt, very sore by the way they've been treated by a male-dominated uh, leadership team who just sometimes high IQ, not well-developed EQ, and just get it wrong, say the wrong thing, like, got to get you all back to work because, you know, your productivity isn't as good as it should be. So come back now, you know, none of this faffing around, just get back to work. Well, you know, hello, you know, are you aware of all the fear and stuff we've been stirring up? I mean, I don't know what thoughts you have, Martin. Um, yeah, I think, um, you know, it, it's difficult, isn't it, in a, in a very much results orientated, uh, you know, setting. Um, and the work that we do is is absolutely leading edge. And we want, you know, scientists that are leading edge. Um, but it's about creating um, an environment where, you know, there's there's also some sense of care in how you do that and striking that appropriate balance. And I think that's actually going to be really important in academia over the next few years. And, I, you know, I can see, um, you know, the grant-giving bodies, you know, almost demanding this uh, of the science base. It's not just... You know, it's not just what you do, it's how you do it that's really important as well. And bringing those two things together and having a dialogue about that, I think is going to be really important. Mm. And I think also you, you touched on something else. When you're in particularly academia, science um, and technical businesses where being right is very important, you know, it's almost part of your identity to actually have the vulnerability to admit, sorry, guys, Actually, I was a bit insensitive there, and I actually got it wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I'm working on it. I'm, you know, work in progress. I'm an incomplete yeah. leader leading a complete team. And I don't see enough of them admitting when they're wrong in the way they've handled people. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. But I, I, I also get a sense that there is a, a growing um, maturity around that issue. Um, you know, I can see it. I can see it where I work. I can see, uh, you know, our senior scientists taking their own personal development very seriously, um, and actually being very reflective, actually, yeah. uh, which is which is a very good thing. We just need to kind of, you know, promulgate that now, uh, you know, as much as we possibly can, and get people talking about it. Yeah, that's very true. Also, think it's it's completely key for for actually the situation we're in, and 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 you made the point earlier, Martin, having the. Um, open enough leadership to to have people say, do you know what? I'm not comfortable with how we're going back to work, or how the 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 um, the the uh, back to work um, process is being done, or or these people being together, or and being able to put your hand up is going to be so vital in in, yep. in this relaxing of lockdown um, as we go yep. along. We have so to just we have sort to, of, sorry, go ahead. I think we have to create an environment. Uh, you know where we're kind to each other actually that, mm. that's that's what it needs within within the bounds of you know legal structures and health and safety and employment law and all of those sorts of things but actually we just need to be kind to each other at the moment that's very true yeah. understanding before, yeah before ben asked you about uh, what, what book you're reading as a final thought what would be um what are your, your last uh, top tips on being an inspiring or who's inspired you a practical tip that you'd pass over and then Ben can ask you about books and we'll wrap up. Um, 
So I'm not actually reading a book at the moment, Ben. I'm very disappointed with myself. I've just been <laughs> so um, overawed by the last few weeks and the things that we've had to deal with. That um, see, I normally listen to books whilst I'm travelling to work in the car mm. um, with the audio books. And you know, sadly, I've kind of because I've been working from home, fallen out of that habit. So that's one of the the, the impacts that, that that COVID's had on me is that my my normal quite sort of you know throughput of books has reduced very significantly. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And the last, the last tip, um, you know, I, you know, combination of you know, just being honest, having integrity, and and expecting that from others as well, Jonathan, and demanding that from others, I think is really important for any inspiring leader. Yeah. Well, Martin, thank you so much for being on the LinkedIn Live series. Um, people recommended you. That's why you're here. It's not because you said, "Oh, I think I'll come on the show." <laughs> um, people said. But you are a man of, of honesty and integrity, and you do lead by do lead by example. And the different things you've done in academia, commercial, charity, public, the police in your spare time, and and being the CEO of such a huge campus with over two thousand people is an example to us all. So I think we've all got a lot to take from it. So um, from me and Ben, thank you very much indeed, and uh, good to have you on the show, Jonathan. Ben, thanks thank very, very much. much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, Get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.